We're moving through the book of Revelation. We're going to continue that uh, tonight. Still in the, the churches. We'll move on tonight to Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7, the church at Philadelphia. So that's Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I can't be sure tonight how this series of sermons we've been going through in the churches of Revelation, how that's affected you. I've got a feeling that, that maybe... Some of us feel a bit battered and a bit drained by it all. And as we've looked at, at these churches, we've maybe seen at times glimpses of ourselves, heard words of warning, and certainly we've been challenged and continually exhorted. So it'll be understandable. If you were sitting just feeling a little bit at the moment of a, a slight sense of trepidation, you know, oh no, not again. Not another mountain set to climb before us. Well, if that's the case, let me set your mind tonight at rest. For you'll just like those refreshment points that you get along the way, scattered at points through a marathon course. So this letter here to the church at Philadelphia, whose name means, as I'm sure many of you will know, brotherly love, and then it was given to honour its founders, uh, the, the brothers who were the rulers of Pergamum, Attalus, and Eumenes, two brothers whose brotherly love was so famous, such an example throughout the ancient world that it was attached to the city they founded. So this letter is a word of refreshment, a word of encouragement to them and to us from the Lord. It's like a cool, clear glass of water given to us from God. If you see, this church was a church that was weak in itself and that was faced by enormous challenges from the world around them and that in addition was, was called by God to what seemed to them must have seemed an impossible task. But you see, what the Lord says to them here in this passage that we're looking at tonight is that weak as you may be, 
yet you have been faithful and true. So continue on, keep on going, keep on putting your trust in me and see not only what I can do, but what I will do in and through you. Don't you think there could be a word in this for us perhaps? The small and weak as we are, in comparison to the massive need that is all around us, the enormous task that we have been called to here, yet, because we've sought to be faithful and true, and I believe we have, we've made our mistakes along the way, we've maybe at four points faltered, but at heart, the vast majority of us, I know, have certainly sought to be faithful. As a church, we've sought to be faithful. So don't you think then there might be just a word of encouragement here for us? That word that God will, God can, in us and through us, do that work. If only we keep on and continue to put our trust in him. What I do, I most certainly do. So let's try to uncover what's this, this precious jewel of encouragement from this passage in Revelation. From the experience of this church at Philadelphia, beginning with fact one about this church, and that is, we've already touched on it, that they were weak in themselves. You know, they didn't just have problems, they were actually drowning in them. First of all, because of their geography. You see, this city of Philadelphia had been founded on the borders, on the intersection, if you like, of three ancient countries, kingdoms. The country of Mycenae, Lydia and Phrygia. Now, in one sense, its location was absolutely perfect because the intention was that from this this base in Philadelphia, that Greek language and Greek culture could be taken from the Greek countries of Mysia and Lydia to the pagan tribes, the uncivilized peoples of Phrygia. So really then, this, this was intended to be a kind of mission base for the extension of Greek culture and civilization. That's a wonderful idea. The only problem was that what the men who founded this city didn't seem to take into account in any way was that this new city was slap bang in the middle of the earthquake center of the region. So we have then the the written record of Strabo, a man who visited Philadelphia, after a major earthquake in A.D. 17. And this is what he says, that Philadelphia was full of earthquakes, for the walls never cease being cracked, and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside as they have fertile land. But one is surprised, even at the few, that they are so fond of the place that they live in such insecure buildings. So the people of of Philadelphia then always lived under the threat of disaster, to the extent, as we said, that many of them chose to live on the outskirts, away from the city and the buildings that could collapse on them at any time. But their geographic location wasn't the only problem faced by the citizens of Philadelphia. As well as this, they also had to deal with the fickleness of their rulers, of the Roman emperors. For you see, after that great earthquake we just touched on in AD 17, 
The emperor then, at that time, Tiberius, he helped greatly, gave finance, poured in resources, everything that was necessary to get this city back on its feet. That, to a degree, he helped them, that as a mark of, of gratitude, they decided for a while that they would be known as Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. But then you see in AD 92, the then emperor Domitian, he completely wiped out at a stroke all the warm feelings and sense of gratitude they had towards Rome. Because in order to correct what he saw and was an imbalance in the crop production of the empire, well, he, he sent out a decree that at least half of the vineyards everywhere in the empire were to be cut down and replaced by corn. Now, this act, I'm sure, was, was well-intentioned, yet it was still, at the same time, it was an act of unthinking, insensitive, blanket bureaucracy. Because the soil of Philadelphia, for one, with the rich deposits of lava that it had from these extinct volcanoes, this was absolutely ideal soil in order to produce a rich harvest of grapes, but it was absolutely hopeless with regard to corn. And just to give you uh, an idea of how hard this decree hit and how unthinking it was, in their part of the world at that time, it was an unwritten law that even in times of war, that you never damaged an enemy's vines or olive trees. Because both in that region take so long to come to fruit-bearing maturity. So you see, Domitian's decree to them was really an act of vandalism that was akin almost to a declaration of war. And without any question, it would have left the citizens of Philadelphia in greatly reduced and impoverished circumstances. But these Christians of Philadelphia not only suffered with their fellow citizens, these common problems of their geography and the fickleness of their rulers. Now, their problems also had, as well as this, an extra dimension that was linked directly to their faith. And that is, in common with the, many of the other churches in, in Revelation we've already looked at, they suffered persecution from the Jews, prompted at least from the Jews. Now, I'm not going to over-elaborate here because this is something we've touched on a number of times, that the Jews, because of the offence that the, the preaching of Christ brought to them, they effectively closed the doors of their synagogues to their Jewish, Christian, former friends and their neighbours. And so because of this then, these Jewish Christians, because they were no longer even a nominal part of an official state-recognised religion, which Judaism was, so this then left these Christians open to persecution from the city authorities, something that it would seem here that the, the Christians of Philadelphia had suffered and had faced up to and stood up to, because they have, verse 8, they have not denied my name, Christ says. So these Christians then at Philadelphia really were under the cosh. Because of their geographic location, always living under the threat of disaster. Because of the whim of the emperor, living, facing poverty and possibly starvation. 
And because of their faith, having to endure the pain of rejection and persecution, ostracized, ridiculed, perhaps even, probably even, physically attacked by those who once had been their neighbors and friends. So the Christians, the church at Philadelphia, they really were weak in themselves. It's no surprise, therefore, that the Lord says to them again in verse 8, I know that you have little strength. That's what they've been brought down to. But these believers, though, they aren't left in their physically weak and feeble state to feel sorry for themselves. Now, here they are also reminded that weak as they are in this world, and they are, yet still, they are strong in the Lord. Yes, that as their faith is in the Lord and continues to be in the Lord, so they are spiritually strong in him, and in him they have all the resources they need. And all this begins to be opened up in the words of of verse 7, where where both the power of Caesar and the hatred of, of the Jews both begin to be answered. For Christ announces himself, he says, These are the words of him who is holy, and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So you see, in contrast to the fickleness of the emperor, Christ is the one who is holy and true. That is, Christ is the one who never changes. He is true. Also, the, the title Holy One is a, is a Jewish title, well-known title for the Messiah, the risen Jesus then here. He's asserted that he is the real Messiah. Despite all the objections of the, the hostile Jews of Philadelphia, verse 9, the synagogue of Satan, he is the real Messiah. And that though they might deny him, yet he is the one who, verse 7, holds David's key. That is, he is the one who has power to welcome people into God's presence or to exclude them from God's presence. With this reference to David's key, surely, I think, in part at least, alluding to Isaiah 22, 22, where Eliakim, the faithful steward of the king then, King Hezekiah, where he holds the keys which control entry into the king's house, and so entry into the king's presence. And so the Jewish Christians, the church as well here at at Philadelphia, they're told that though the Jewish synagogues, though they may close the door of their synagogue to you, yet Jesus Christ opens the door for you into the presence of the king. Of kings, And also in this, Gentiles, non-Jews, are included here as well. They, we, through them, we are told that despite the objections of the Jews, Christ has opened the door for us to enter in and to become one of the people of God. But some of us might find the, some of the language that's used here about the Jews a, a bit kind of upsetting in light of all the horrors we know were that were perpetrated on them throughout history, and particularly in World War II and the increase of anti-Semitism 
in our own time. We might find some of that stuff kind of near the bone, particularly uh, where it says, verse 8, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. For it might seem that this is suggesting that the Jews groveling at the church's feet and admitting too late for their own salvation that they were wrong with the, the kind of accompanying thought of, of us, the church, sort of crowing over, rejoicing in their fate. However, I, I don't believe that this is in fact the meaning of what is actually said here because that's not in keeping either the character of our God nor what our God expects of his people. No, rather what this is is a turning on their head of various scriptures in Isaiah, like Isaiah 45, 14, Isaiah 49, 6, scriptures which speak there, which foretell of the Gentiles finding salvation, finding the Lord through Israel, which, of course, they did through Jesus and the disciples. But now you see here what the Lord is saying, that it's now the Jews, it's now these Jewish persecutors of the church who must come to see that the church is now the special object of God's love. They have to see this before they can come again and truly know the Lord and so find his salvation. However, I believe this this talk here, this reference here to an open door isn't just a, a promise regarding the church's relationship with the Jews I believe not as well as this, it's also a a, a challenge to evangelism. For that phrase, open door, is often used in the New Testament when speaking about evangelism, about mission. It's especially used by Paul. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, where he says there that I will stay on at at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened up for me. And then in Colossians 4.3, where he urges there the Christians at Colossae to pray for him and to pray for Timothy that God may open a door for our message. So you see then, that this, this city of Philadelphia that had carefully been planted and founded in order to be a missionary base for Greek culture, this city was now in God's providence it's been said here, is to be used as a missionary base for the extension of the gospel throughout this region. Yes, this this faithful church, despite their weakness, they are told are going to be used by God to spread the gospel. Used by a God who's placed them there to carry out his responsibilities and therefore who takes responsibility to enable them for this task, to carry them through to the point of victory over all who would oppose them. So it says in verse 8, See, I have placed before you an open door. They've tried to close it, but I have opened it, a door that no one can shut. But what does all this mean practically? What relevance does all this have For us, this fact that it is Christ who opens doors for effective mission. Well, let me share just one or two thoughts here with you 
some of them are mine, some are a bit mixed up with what Stephen Travis has written in his great book on the Churches of Revelation. So the first thing then I believe that this means or should mean is that we should be encouraged by the fact that Christ himself takes responsibility for opening doors for a mission. Encouraged for what he opens, no one can shut. So what we need to recognize then and what we need to, to keep in our mind that it is the Holy Spirit's work to create a hunger in people for the gospel and to open their eyes to the truth. That's the message. That's the ministry of God and the Spirit. And we've just got to be ready and open to see where God's leading. And this should help to preserve us from trying to prize open doors that might be shut right now and just enable us to be open and sensitive to God and just to trust him to lead us and guide us as we're eager to be involved in mission he will lead us and guide us into the right areas of work second let's be like the church in Philadelphia that is they didn't wait until they were strong before being adventurous in mission and neither should we. You know, too often churches, they say, when we're ready, we'll do this. When we're ready, we see the need. But when we're ready, no. That you'll wait forever. It's not about your readiness. It's about you counting on Christ's power to use you in your weakness even. Rather than you being ready. It doesn't depend on our readiness. It depends on God's grace and power. Next, don't waste too much time lamenting the doors that are closed, but make the most of the open doors. And just an example, in Turkey, where those, all these churches in Revelation mostly were situated, there are now enormous obstacles placed in the way of mission of evangelism. I've heard a lot about that in recent days. Incredibly difficult. But there are 1.5 million and more Turkish guest workers in Western Europe. Get working there. Get alongside these people. And finally, I just say here, recognize your own unique opportunities. You know, no one else has got your network of friends, your places of influence. No one else has got exactly your open doors. Nobody has. Here's this interesting piece of information. Bit of a divergence, but here it is. Just thinking about the contacts that we might have to share. Do you know who once was a dishwasher in the Carlton Hotel in Palmall, London? Ho Chi Minh, the father of communist Vietnam. Well, just imagine, think what might have happened. Maybe a war could, be, could have been averted. Millions of lives have been saved if a witnessing Christian had been working at the sink beside him. You know, take the opportunities that you have. Take them. We move on to the Lord's final word here to this church, who though they were weak in themselves, were strong in him. And that is that they were reminded and told that if they remained faithful, they would be rewarded. They'd be rewarded first in the present, verse 10. 
Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think that this means that God's faithful people will, because of their faithfulness, be kept from all suffering. That's not true to what the Bible teaches elsewhere. It's not true to our experience. And nor was it true to the experience of these Christians at Philadelphia. Even here in these verses, it talks of them enduring patiently. But rather, what I believe this means is that God's people will be kept from all suffering that arises from God's judgment directly on the world, on those who live on the earth. And what it means is that even when our suffering comes from the world, comes from the enemies of the church who've been prompted by the evil one, even then, although we will not be kept from suffering, in the sense we'll not be untouched by it, yet we will be preserved and sustained by the grace of God even in the midst of it. For example, Samuel Rutherford, who was imprisoned here in Scotland for his faith in the 17th century and suffered as a result of that, yet he wrote about his cell. He said, Jesus Christ came into my cell last night and every stone flashed like a ruby. But far more important even than this, God's faithful people will also be rewarded in the life to come. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write upon him my new name. Now let's just concentrate here on, on what it says about being a pillar in the temple of God. You see, if you look at Revelation 21-22, it makes it clear there that there is no other temple than the Father and the Son in Jerusalem. That's the temple. The Father and the Son. The promise that's given here then to the faithful people of God is that of an inseparable unity with God in the eternity that's to come. I've kind of been built in to God. And that's underlined then by the, the image of the name written on them. Because the name indicates God's ownership. And God's protection. As God puts his name upon us, he's saying they are mine, kind of hands off, if you like. And it speaks then of the eternal security of a believer who has true faith in the Lord. Now, don't you think that that would be meaningful, that symbolism, to the citizens of Philadelphia as they looked at the city all around them? that the walls and the pillars of their city might fall down. They had and they might again. But that the Lord would never let his people fall. And isn't that an encouragement too to us today? That as we seek to be faithful and yet we know we are weak and weak as we are, 
Yet we know that we are strong in the Lord. And we know that it's not down to us, that he will open doors to enable us to evangelize. He'll provide us with open doors and opportunities if only we're ready to see those open doors and seize the opportunity. And that at the end of it all, as we are faithful in following his leading, we will be rewarded. We'll be preserved, we'll be kept at least in any suffering in this world. But we'll also, more importantly, be his forever, for all eternity, in the world to come. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, it's a tremendous encouragement to know that you don't have to be some fantastically talented, always on top of the world, successful Christian, successful church. You don't have to be that to be pleasing to God. But rather, what you have to be is faithful. And if we're faithful, that's enough for God. God can use weak people so long as they're faithful people. I hope that's an encouragement to you because it definitely very much is to me. Let's just pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the lessons we learned from the church at Philadelphia. Thank you for the way that your hand rested upon them and the inner weakness. But that was no hindrance to you because you use that weakness to reveal your strength and power and glory. Lord, help us to see tonight that the fact that we're weak, that's not what's important. What really matters is that we are faithful and obedient to you. If we've got that in our heart, then you can use us and you will use us. Lord, may we be ready to be used by you for your glory. Amen.